remain standing and pray with me. Almighty God, we come this morning and humble ourselves before the throne of King Jesus. We humble ourselves before the word that you speak to us from the scriptures. You are King and Lord, we are your servants. Lord, this is challenging for us. We live every day of our lives as if, at least some part, we are in control of our own existence. This morning, we're reminded that ultimately all our allegiance, our very being, is owed to you. So help me now as the preacher of the word to preach a word that I know is a challenging word in our culture. And help us as the people of God gathered to receive the word, Lord, from you and apply it in our lives. We need the Holy Spirit this morning to come and fill this place, fill the preacher and fill the people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, for those of you who have been a part of Christ Church for some time, uh, you know that Christ the King is one of my favorite Christian holidays. If you're new to Christ Church, you need to know that this is something we really enjoy and thank God for, this particular holy day in the Christian year. I find it a very exciting day because it's the day in which uh, I get to remind us all that following Jesus, as soon as you say Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, we have all made an inherently political statement which is terrifying for anyone to hear from a pulpit. And so I know that it's exciting for me to have to say that. And y'all are very nervous now. Is he going to go off the rails? And so let me just assure you this morning, yeah, that I probably will. So (laughs) don't encourage me, Ty. (laughs) Some of this will sound familiar to you if you've been here for any length of time. But we do have to return to this over and over again. We need to come back to this point that Christ the King Sunday reminds us that we believe that this very moment, Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And if that is true, he is not merely my personal, private Lord and King, but he has authority to govern all of existence now, this very moment. In other words, Christ the King Sunday proclaims that right this minute, Jesus Christ is Lord over politics, Art, the press, medicine, education, business, law, sex, work, play, and our material possessions, indeed over all of human existence. And based on the witness of Scripture, we believe that when Christ's lordship, when Christ's lordship is expressed and embraced in any society, we genuinely believe that this enhances human flourishing. But I want you to know that everything that I just said to our secular neighbors sounds wicked and shocking and repulsive. To claim that kind of dominion in the here and now for Jesus Christ to our secular neighbors sounds like probably the worst thing you could say in public. We hear that shock and revulsion in the response of someone like Adam Gopnik of the New Yorker magazine. A few years ago, Gopnik had this to say about a prominent politician's responses when he was asked about abortion. This politician said when he was asked about his views on abortion, I don't see how a person can separate their public life from their private life or from their faith. Our faith informs us in everything we do. 
And to this, Gopnik responded, that is a shocking answer, a mullah's answer. What those scary Iranian ayatollahs this politician kept referring to when talking about Iran would say as well. This politician was rejecting, rejecting, Gopnik says, was rejecting secularism itself. Our faith should not inform us in everything we do, or there would be no end to the religious warfare that our tolerant founders feared. There's so much I could say about this quote from Adam Gopnik, but here's the thing that I have seen in the wake of the recent attacks in Paris is that the secularists do not have the intellectual imagination to be able to distinguish one religion from another. To them, all religion is just a toxic brew that's in one great big pot. And so for them, Islam is Christianity, is Buddhism, is Judaism. It all has this toxic quality. And that just lacks precision of thought, which many of these people make their living based on precision of thought. You see, our post-Christian secular society believes that Christian faith has no place influencing the public square. In other words, that the Christian faith is essentially personal and private with reference only to my inner life. And what's more, many of us who call ourselves Christians actually live our lives as if we believe exactly the same thing. Christian cultural commentator and thinker Ken Myers calls that view the cultural captivity of the church. In other words, paraphrasing Myers, we are content to let secular institutions such as government, education, and media define how we ought to live from Monday to Saturday. The church, on the other hand, helps us with our internal life. It functions as spiritual Prozac. Thus, we let the non-Christian world define human nature, authority, freedom, justice, and on and on. Jesus is just here to make me feel better. Jesus is just here to make me feel better. But friends, Jesus Christ and the witness of the Scriptures will not permit us to hold that secular position and still consider ourselves to be authentically and thoroughly Christian. So yes, Mr. Gopnik, your worst fears are true. To be an authentic follower of Jesus Christ is to reject the fundamental assumptions of secularism. It was Dutch theologian and statesman, you hear me quote him often, Abraham Kuyper, who said it very well. He said, for us as believers, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, mine. And that is exactly why we celebrate Christ the King Sunday. Now, this feast day was originally promulgated by Pope Pius XI in 1925 in an encyclical letter called Quas Primus. But us folks who come from the Reformed tradition liked it so good, we claimed that we thought it up. He, he promulgated that encyclical, Quas Primus, in response to the emergence of political states that were claiming ultimate allegiance from their citizens, and also in response to the rise of secularism. In particular, at that point in time, he's thinking about the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution and the rise of the communist state in what became the Soviet Union. But it also applies to what emerges in the early 1930s with National Socialism and Fascism in Italy and in Germany. 
And that's why we still need Christ the King Sunday today, and especially we need to hear the scriptures that we read today, because dearly beloved, let me tell you what, the state has not stopped with these totalizing, self-aggrandizing, usurpizing, I just made that one up, (laughs) claims over human existence. Secularism, the secular state itself ultimately puts itself in the place of the Almighty. It is the inevitable, the, the inevitable trajectory of the secular state. By removing all faith from the public square, the state itself becomes the ultimate truth and the ultimate authority, which we generally would call God. I want to focus just a moment on that text we heard from Revelation this morning. Because, you see, the book of Revelation was written around the year 95 A.D. during a time of intense persecution of Christians by the Roman state. Christians were being persecuted because the Roman government saw us as a political and a moral threat, a political and a moral threat to society. As a political threat, we were behaving as if the state did not have supreme authority. Those Christians were choosing to obey Jesus Christ rather than the, the established legal authority of the state in critical areas that promoted the unity and the welfare of the government. In particular, those Christians refused to honor Caesar as God and to burn incense before an image of Caesar while proclaiming, Kaiser est dominus, Caesar is Lord. We wouldn't say it. And as such, Christians were seen as a clear and present danger to homeland security. Those Christians were seen as a moral threat to the culture of Rome because they were unwilling to adopt traditional family values. Values that supported the family and preserved the social order, particularly those Christians understood that their allegiance to Jesus Christ and to fellow believers was, to, was of a higher order than allegiance to their own blood family and social class. And Jesus himself told us it would be that way. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 39, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. We have had people recently in our own community and church family and who are coming to this church today who have had to choose between family and friends and faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Jesus said it would be that way. Whoever loves father or mother, Jesus said, more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And not only did those Christians not fit in, they were raising their children not to fit in. Those Christians demonstrated their antisocial and toxic ideas by refusing to adopt out their kids to good Roman families when those traitorous Christians were consigned to die in the arena. Instead, those Christians elected to take their children with them 
to face being torn to pieces and devoured by the lions rather than having them raised to reject Christ in a loving, stable, prosperous Roman household. And you think that's impossible. That could have never happened. And this very week, I saw the photographs of children who were beheaded by ISIS because they and their parents would not renounce Jesus Christ. It's happening today! And it happened 2,000 years ago. Those crazy Christians. I mean, okay, mom and dad, you won't say the Shahada. You won't say that there is one God and Muhammad is his prophet. But good grief, don't let your children die for Jesus. And yet they did. And it is into that context that Jesus refills himself in the scripture we just read to St. John. But instead of encouraging those persecuted followers to strive to just blend in, don't be so obnoxious to the surrounding community. Fit in, go along and get along. Instead of doing that, Jesus just ups the ante. The scripture here powerfully proclaims that Jesus Christ right now is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, I want you to listen to that because in 95 AD to the church of the living, risen Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus seemed like maybe a lot of things, but king of the rulers of the earth at that moment was not one of them. Not when they were being hauled away in the night. Not when they were facing Roman magistrates and put before crowds in the arena. Jesus says that Christians in this passage are a separate kingdom who have ultimate allegiance to God alone. Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us. This is being said to a dying church, a suffering people, to him who loves us. And remember why we're here. Has freed us from our sins by his blood. And made us a kingdom. Priest to his God and Father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Just yesterday I read from Ipsos Research. It's like Pew Research. It's another research firm. 58% of Americans feel disconnected from the country they live in. 53% said that they feel like strangers in their country. Well, brothers and sisters, that's not news to us. We've heard that for 2,000 years. You're strangers and aliens. The first thing that Jesus gives you when you get baptized is your green card. You can work here, but this isn't your home. So I don't care this morning if you are a registered Democrat or Republican or Libertarian. Woohoo! Or uh, if you're a Libertarian, you get to go, woohoo! Or unaffiliated, I am, I am registered, unaffiliated. I have no opinions. <laughs> that is exactly the right response. I don't care what your registration or lack thereof says. All authentic followers of Jesus Christ are ultimately monarchists. The ultimate expression of government is the kingly reign of Jesus Christ over the entire cosmos for all eternity.
Praise be to God. That keeps being said throughout the book of Revelation. You know, if you wonder why, by the way, I know some of y'all probably don't come from an Anglican tradition or a liturgical tradition. Don't be afraid of men in dresses. Just, it's okay. We're still manly. I know that we do a lot of weird-looking things here. It's very, I mean, if, don't worry. If you don't understand what's going on in this service, probably the person next to you doesn't either, and they may have been here for a long time. But, uh, but, if, but one of the great things that the book of Revelation gives to us is this pattern of worship. And, and so the, the images we see in that book of worship are what we try to replicate in our worship. So it's biblical. It's rooted in the Scriptures. But the other wonderful thing about that book of Revelation is it keeps reminding Christians that Jesus really is King of kings. He really is Lord of lords. And it comes up splendidly in Revelation chapter 11 where it says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And if your heart doesn't just swell with that chorus, from Handel's Messiah. You just haven't listened to it long enough. And he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. So therefore, brothers and sisters, we are right now already subjects of King Jesus and citizens of that kingdom. And we are reminded in 1 Peter, as I've already noted, that we live here as sojourners and aliens in this world. And even in our own countries of origin, we are resident aliens in our own homeland. And that, that brings us, these truths from Scripture, inevitably, if we are to be faithful, bring us to real points of application in our lives. And I want to make two points of application this morning, and the second one has different facets to it. In fact, more than we could fit into this sermon. But the first application is this. Along with our brothers and sisters who first read this book of, Re of Revelation in the year 95 A.D., we remain loyal and obedient citizens of the state as long as the state does, listen, as long as the state does not command that which Christ forbids or forbids that which Christ commands. It was St. Thomas More, under that bad old king, Henry VIII. By the way, I don't, think Henry, I don't claim Henry VIII as the beginning of the English Reformation. I claim Elizabeth I as the beginning of the English Reformation. There was an intervening period where there was that merry woman who loved to burn perfectly good Englishmen at the stake. But King Henry, in his maniacal uh, quest for, for absolute security in his crown, had one of his closest, most loyal, and beloved counselors executed, and that was St. Thomas More. And on his way to die, St. Thomas More said this, I am the king's good servant, but God's first. We are the state's good servant, but God's first. And so when the state coerces us to deny the clear command of King Jesus, we are duty-bound, you are duty-bound, I am duty-bound in that case to disobey the state and to accept the consequences. That is the classic position of Christian civil disobedience. If the state calls you 
to deny the clear command of King Jesus, you are duty-bound as a follower of Jesus Christ. Baptized, born again, washed in his blood, waiting for his appearing, you must disobey. I must disobey and accept the consequences. This kind of civil disobedience is exactly what the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke of from behind jailhouse bars when he wrote his letter from a Birmingham jail in 1963. He says, of course, there's nothing new to this kind of civil disobedience. It was evidenced sublimely in the refusal of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to obey the laws of Nebuchadnezzar on the ground that a higher moral law was at stake. It was practiced superbly by the early Christians who were willing to face hungry lions and the, and the excruciating pain of chopping blocks rather than submit to certain unjust laws of the Roman Empire. King says, we should never forget that everything Adolf Hitler did in Germany was legal. It was illegal to aid and, combat and comfort a Jew in Hitler's Germany. Even so, I am sure that had I lived in Germany at the time, I would have aided and comforted my Jewish brothers. And I believe him when he says that because he's in jail when he's writing this. And I would have aided and comforted my Jewish brothers. If today I lived in a communist country where certain principles dear to the Christian faith are suppressed, I would openly advocate disobeying that country's anti-religious laws. And in the same way, dear brothers and sisters, our country today, in our country today, we must not obey any law that forces us to do that which Jesus Christ and the clear apostolic teaching of the Scriptures forbid. And unfortunately, you and I have arrived at that point. As we have seen the state forcing Christian institutions and individuals to provide for the killing of unborn children, as in the case, in the case of the religious order of nuns called the Little Sisters of the Poor. <laughs> the judge told them that it should not, this should not bother your conscience. I love what the little, sister of, little Sisters of the Poor, uh, their attorney, Mark Rienzi, said this. He said, judges aren't qualified <laughs> to tell nuns what the right answers are on questions of moral complicity. The state is not qualified to tell us what should bother our conscience. Martin Luther, before the Synod, before the Diet of Worms, said... It is neither safe nor good to go against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. God, help me. And God, help us because in a recent pro-abortion forum in Manhattan, a candidate for the highest office of the land, who may indeed be our next president, stated this. This candidate said, have to be backed up with resources and political will. And deep-seated cultural codes, listen to what this person said, religious beliefs and structural biases have to be changed. Well, I finally, I, I, I just, I humbly disagree. I'm sorry, I will not change my deep-held religious beliefs. 
And the state can go wherever the Lord Jesus Christ should desire to put it in the case it would require that of me. This is the let's go to jail sermon. <laughs> now, I'm too old and I'm too pretty to go to jail. But I will if I have to as long as somebody will come and visit me. Now, the second point of application here, and this is the one that has some underlying points, is, is that we have to adopt, as the, as the people of God, we have to adopt practices to counteract the riptide of secularism that is sweeping us and our children out to sea. The first practice that you and I have to embrace is that we all have to install the Jesus filter in our thinking. What do I mean by that? It means this. Every allegiance that we are called to in our life must pass through the filter of our ultimate allegiance to Jesus Christ. So we must ask ourselves, does this practice required of me at work or in my social setting contravene my loyalty to Jesus Christ? Or does it support my loyalty to Jesus Christ? Everything must be passed through the filter of God's Word. If If it comports with following Jesus Christ, it goes to the filter. And yes, I'll do that. And if it doesn't, I won't. Oh, but hear me. We are in a time when we are being called to little by little make very incremental, tiny compromises. And before long, we are very, very far away from the commands of our Lord and Savior. The second thing is, we have to raise our children not to fit in. We have reached the tipping point in our culture in which living our lives as authentic Christians who have not capitulated to or accommodated the culture looks at best weird and quaint to the society around us. Kind of like the Amish. Tourists might come and visit us. We'll make some jam. Casseroles. Welcome to the Dean's house. Would you like to eat a lot of food? <laughs> and that's the best it can look, but at most, for most people, at least for a growing number of people, we just look wicked and repulsive. And I wouldn't be surprised if some of us weren't feeling that revulsion right now. I want to ask you, are you willing, are we willing to let our children be weird to not get into the most prestigious university. And let me tell you this. I'm going to out myself. I am a classic liberal. You didn't know that. Some of you didn't know that. I am literally a classical liberal in the classic liberal tradition. I believe in freedom of thought. I believe in freedom of speech. I believe in the liberties that were handed down to us by the founders of, this, of, our, of our nation. That's liberalism, and I'm a classic liberal. And I can tell you as a classic liberal, the most illiberal place in North America today is a secular state university campus. And we've seen that over the last three weeks. Where there isn't a, a variety of ways of thinking, where you can't have a discussion about differing viewpoints, where you can't disagree with the received wisdom and political correctness that is being handed down. So it might not be a bad thing if they don't go to that prestigious university. Are you willing to let your kids' future earning potential be, be 
crippled because of their weird and offensive values. Oh, but Pastor Ben, you don't understand. They've got to make a living. They've got, we, they need, I want them to be high achievers. Well, obviously, if that is your, listen, if you are willing to sell your children's eternal salvation for earning potential, you have sold them far cheaper than 30 pieces of silver. And those values have to be rooted in their loyalty to Jesus Christ. This is challenging. I'm a granddaddy. You know what you love more than your children? Your grandchildren. Sorry, children. <laughs> Another point under that second thing that we, we have, these practices, we, we have to think about the fact that prestige and the approval of our fallen world can't be our goal in, as a Christian parent. And so I'm calling us all out who are parents and grandparents, especially for those who have had their children baptized, especially those who have had their children baptized here. You promised in the name of your child to renounce the devil and all his works, the vain pomp and glory of the world, except when we really like it. No. With all its covetous desires and the, and the sinful desires of the flesh so that that child would not follow nor be led by them. I don't have time to go into this. I understand we have families who are financially in a situation where we can't make a lot of different choices on our children's education. I understand that we have people who are faithful and loving followers of Jesus Christ who, who work in public education. I have taught in the public education system. My dad has taught in the public education system. He's an attorney now. My, both of my sisters were trained to be teachers in North Carolina. Don't tell me. I don't know what I'm talking about. I've done it. And so I know there are good Christian people in our education system, but I want you to know something. I think we have become, we've come to a point where we cannot consign our children, if we have any other option, to be educated by an anti-Christian state. The problem isn't a particular topic. I know, wow, this is really getting out on a limb. I don't care. I live there. And I've even got a saw. The problem isn't a particular topic that is taught. Instead, there is an indoctrination process where children are indoctrinated into a worldview that is inherently corrosive to Christian faith in its presuppositions, its a prioris, are antithetical to faithfulness. And in response to that, all I can think is that we need a plethora of parochial schools, classical schools that are able to educate our kids and low-income kids in a Christian worldview. Because what the secular education system thinks about what it means to be a human being and to flourish as a human being and what we think as believers in Jesus Christ to be a human being is and what to flourish as a human being is are often very different if not diametrically opposed. God, give us the grace to do these things. We have to think carefully and critically about the cultural givens. There may be things in our culture that everybody does. I don't know, Black Friday maybe. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying think critically about it. If you run over somebody getting to it, though, you've got a problem. Practices like Black Friday or the kind of media that we consume, certainly the celebrity culture, the entertainment culture, I'm going to cast that demon Kardashian right out. I'm not talking about that. It's the, the, it's the entertainment. 
the, the cultural entertainment complex. You know, the shift in our values as a, as a nation on marriage comes mostly from the indoctrination of popular entertainment culture. We need to think about the culture we're consuming via that, those means. But finally, the last practice that we need to do, and there's so many I could, I, could, I could list, but listen to this. You and I are called to be salt and light in our culture. And that means one practice we cannot do is that we cannot retreat into Christian ghettos. We have to be like Daniel and his companions, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego under Babylon, who, fully, who were fully educated, deeply steeped in the art and worldview of Babylon while maintaining complete devotion to the God of Israel. It can be done. We're all called to be bicultural as followers of Jesus Christ. Our kids need to have the most thorough education. Please don't teach them things that aren't true. If I hear another person tell me, well, evolution can't be true because of the law of entropy, I might just, you know, my head will catch on fire. Because, folks, that is just not, you, you just don't understand the science. And at some point, your children are going to be placed in a situation where somebody does understand the science. And you know what, mom and dad, if you've told them something that wasn't, and it was not demonstrably true, they're going to think everything else you taught them wasn't true either. So teach them the deep, good stuff that's there, but also teach them that Christian worldview too. All of this, all of this ultimately is rooted in the character of our King, King Jesus. And so I need to, but this is so challenging, it's difficult. And so the only way I think that would be appropriate to bring it back together is to bring it back to the character of the king we serve. And so whatever I've said all comes within this framework. This is St. Gregory, Gregory Nazianzus in his third theological oration. I know that just thrills you to hear that. And in parts I'm, I'm paraphrasing. But he reminds us of the character of the king. He came from eternal glory, yet he was cradled in a manger. His, he was obedient as a child, yet as a child taught the wise in the temple. He created all things, yet he possessed nothing. He brought joy to the multitudes, yet was a man of sorrows. He hungered, but he fed thousands. He thirsted, but he cried out, if any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He is the ancient of days, yet he welcomed little children into its midst. He was sold cheap for only 30 pieces of silver, but he redeemed the world at great price for the price of his own blood. He raised the dead, yet he offered himself as a victim to death. He was the most, he was the most innocent of all humanity, yet was convicted as a criminal. He eased the suffering of the sick, but was himself scourged and tortured for our sins. He was due the worship of men and angels, but was mocked when he was lifted up on the cross. He died, yet he rose from the dead and destroys death. He has the sovereign right to do as he pleases with our lives, yet he awaits an invitation even to enter the heart of a child. He came in humility and was killed in shame, but will return in glory. Many reject him today, but all will bow the knee to him at his appearing. Brothers and sisters, it is not an accident that for some strange reason you came to this church today. If this is challenging, and yes, even if it is, and if it, I, look, I don't want to be capriciously offensive, 
but I will offend you for the cause of Christ because I got offended first. And if it's truth that is causing that stabbing pain right now, maybe the response is, King Jesus, what must I do to be your loyal subject? I, I am in some ways very, very afraid of what the implications of this means for me personally in times such as these. But I commit as your priest and pastor to pray for you and I need you to pray for me, and if necessary, come visit me in jail. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.